Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. I'm Abhishek. And today I have the privilege to talk to the man who is at the helm of one of the most leading publications which has a cult following. Joining me from London is the Economist's executive editor who is also the editor-in-chief of Economist.com, Daniel Franklin. Daniel, it's an honor to have you here. My pleasure. Uh, I, was, I was eagerly looking forward to this and only last evening, in fact, a friend of mine and I were talking about this. And uh, as readers, we were amazed uh, or we are amazed at the versatility of The Economist, which has an opinion on everything from unmanned aerial vehicles to capital punishment in Texas to shrimp farming. So, Daniel, how demanding is your role, both personally and professionally? Well, the secret to, to The Economist generally is, is the quality of the people who are working for it. It's a magnificent group of people, both of staff on the newspaper, as we call it, and also the wider network of contributors that we have. Not as many people, perhaps, as you might imagine. We're perhaps 70 journalists on the newspaper. Then I think just to retain that curiosity in a wide range of subjects, that's the secret. Mm-hmm. Daniel, when did you first decide that journalism is what you wanted to do? I rather fell into it. It was 24 years ago, and I'd had a bit of a wandering life. I'd done a a doctoral thesis on the economies of Central and Eastern Europe, what were then centrally planned economies, and I'd traveled around the world and didn't really know what I wanted to do until I started doing some freelance work for the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is a sister organization to The Economist, and um, met the people at The Economist newspaper and straight away felt at home there. I knew immediately that this was where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, You joined The Economist in 1983, is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, Well, that was the year that I was born. So in other words... (laughs) You're making me feel very old. Oh, no, no, no. In other words, (laughs) you complete 25 eventful years in the organization this year. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've been very lucky because it is a a tremendous and privileged place to work. I think you rely very much on the wisdom that is in the organization among very brilliant colleagues. And we have vigorous discussions and then you have the confidence of going with your instincts. Mm -hmm. Uh, How challenging is it to cope with off-the-record comments while you are on the field uh, with all your experience, because it must be difficult to pretend you don't know something that you actually know and you have to write the truth knowing well that you can't go on record all the time. Well, one of the distinguishing features, of course, of The Economist is our anonymity. We don't have signed articles with one or two exceptions. So perhaps we're quite used to not naming names. <laughs> that is a complaint <laughs> and, uh, with many readers, including me. <laughs> yes, but it works well for us. And uh-huh. I think so. that makes us perhaps, I think, particularly comfortable with the idea that you accumulate information that you don't necessarily feel that you have to put names to things or you know, blurt things out when it's not appropriate. Well, I think it helps to make us trusted. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you were to abuse that trust, then you would very quickly find it harder to have those conversations. Right. Andreas Kluth, uh, your humble tech correspondent from San Francisco, was kind enough to participate in a podcast here. And yes. he said uh, about the sense of humor that pervades through The Economist, he said that if you don't have a sense of humor, you're better off not working here. So what's with that... <laughs> British sense of humor that binds all the writers on The Economist. 
Yeah, I think that the previous editor, Bill Emmett, once commented on sort of reflecting on his time as, as editor, that the thing that really strikes him is the sound of laughter from the meetings in his office, mm-hmm. which is very true. You know, it's important. The world is a serious enough place. <laughs> in any case, you have to have a laugh from time to time. And I think it goes hand in hand with not being too reverent about the world, certainly about governments, mm-hmm. and to keep a healthy skepticism. Healthy scepticism, that's nicely put. Well, it's not the same as cynicism, it is healthy scepticism. So that explains why you chose to end the editor's note on your World in 2008 edition with two words, happy nibbling. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Well, I I hope that there's a good sense of enjoyment as well as, of course, the serious stuff. But uh, on the other hand, were there moments, I'm sure there might have been, where there was a backlash of taking the humor a little too far? I vividly remember the cover story of September issue of, I think, 2003 on the Cancun WTO ministerial meeting where you featured a cactus giving a middle finger. So I'm sure we had plenty of feedback on that. Uh, the one that sticks in my mind strongly is a cover that we had with uh, two camels copulating, and uh, <laughs> that was a cover story on the trouble with mergers. It was a business story. So I think, yes, sometimes it can be a bit, a bit bold, but again, if you look at perhaps some of the other news weeklies and the covers that they have, which are often designed by committees and very hard to have that degree of, of boldness, I think it's better to veer on the side of boldness rather than on blandness, if you like. Right. How do you react to some of the extreme behaviors of a few countries, say like China, where a few sections of The Economist were taken out because they used harsh words against the authoritative regimes there? Well, there's always going to be a problem of regimes that don't like what we say and Mm -hmm. censorship for whatever reasons. I mean, it could be political controversy that they don't want or political criticism. It could, in some cases, be restrictions on showing a certain amount of flesh in pictures. Now, clearly, there's no point in gratuitously causing offence. That's never going to be our aim. But we want to carry on writing and, and producing magazines with freedom and if some countries don't allow it, well, I think it's a shame for them. Does this thought cross your mind that it's too big a market to be lost, so let's just omit that story? Never. No, no, absolutely not. No, the day that we started thinking like that would be an unfortunate one. We entirely think about what we want to say, what we Mm -hmm. think the world needs to hear from us, and then we say it. So then that takes us to this uh, question about editorial freedom, where very recently when Rupert Murdoch acquired Wall Street Journal, there was a lot of talk on whether he would stem the liberty or editorial freedom out there. So who are the controllers of The Economist and how much editorial freedom is given to the correspondents on the field? Well, it does have complete editorial freedom in that there's a rather complicated trust arrangement whereby the editor of the, of the magazine is appointed, cannot be fired by the owners, uh, only by the trustees, group of four independent grandees. It's a private company. Half of the company is owned by Pearson via the Financial Times and the other half by private shareholders. Um, It's all designed so that there can be no influence by the owners on the editorial and the editorial line. And in practice, that's really how it works out. There's a culture of freedom and of, of independence that permeates all our discussions. So then uh, the magazine, it's no secret that it's very, very opinionated. So it would be preposterous to assume that uh, there are no conflicts uh, within the correspondence and the newspaper itself when The Economist wants to take a stand. So how do you resolve such conflict? Uh, What do you mean by conflict? I think there's certainly argument among the um, 
among the journalists, if that's what right. you mean. So exactly. we have, for example, on, on a Monday morning, this is perhaps where some of the most important business of the week gets done, and then we come together, everybody in the editor's office, and all the ideas for the week example, are put forward, and then they get vigorously argued over. And as we've discussed, a certain amount of humour, sometimes quite, quite big, disagreement, but always, I hope, courteously and with respect. And that's really one of the most interesting times of the week because you have a real to and fro of ideas. And ideas emerge better from having been batted around quite vigorously among the assembled journalists. In the end, if there really is a, a disagreement, let's say, I'm sure we will have a vigorous discussion, for example, over which candidate we should endorse for America's president right. in November. In the end, it's the editor's decision. It's not quite a democracy. There's ultimately the editor who decides. And that, that's the way it has to work, and it's, it's what everybody accepts. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the Internet, that is Economist.com. You're also the editor-in-chief mm. of Economist.com. And yeah. first of all, congratulations for a very sexy user interface for audio and video that has oh, just come you. up. So the credit goes to you, your team, Brendan Greeley, everyone on it. But would it be wrong to say that it took a little while for The Economist to make the switch to embrace uh, the new media? Yes, I think that's fair. I think, first of all, the the world of online publishing is moving very fast, so it's objectively quite hard to keep up. You don't necessarily want to be right at the forefront because you might zoom off in the wrong direction. You know, Mm -hmm. when something is so new, uh, you want to make sure that what you're doing is, is solid and stable, if you like. So I think we have tended to do certain things very well, and I think we've done some rather pioneering things in audio, as you say, not just the interface you mentioned, but for example, we now publish the entire print edition in audio, call it the audio edition, it's about six or seven hours worth of reading, very professionally read articles, and that has had a tremendous appeal to a number of types of people, that obviously people who are, have difficulty actually reading, who may be either blind or partially sighted, for example, um, they appreciate it tremendously, or people who want to listen to it while they're doing other things, while they're doing the housework or commuting to work or at the gym. And people find this tremendously helpful to them and we've had very warm feedback. So I think we've done a number of quite innovative things, but of course there's an awful lot of experimentation happening and we have to be careful that we do high quality things um, at the cutting edge as well. Uh, You mentioned about the commute when people could listen to that. In Bombay, the traffic sometimes is so bad that it takes you a good two and a half hours to reach office, so it's a very good time. That is the perfect way to spend it, you see. You should recommend it to all your friends. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, uh, Daniel, you were also there back in 1997 when you saw the dot-com boom, which had just started to take shape. And back then, people had started writing off the print media. What was the mood in the bureaus back then in The Economist? Uh, I would answer this in two halves, perhaps. Mm -hmm. One with The Economist newspaper and one with The Economist Intelligence Unit, which is actually where I was working in 1997. The Economist has been fortunate in that its circulation has continued to go up and up because people will still read, it seems, in print. With The Economist Intelligence Unit business information, um, that moved 
substantially online and we suddenly found that people no longer wanted to consume as much in print and indeed it was much more efficient to deliver this sort of information electronically and to make it searchable and I'm sure this you will find this in your own life you mix different information sources in different ways for different purposes so you'll do a certain amount of reading I hope you'll do a certain amount of listening because we're talking here in, in an audio format and you'll also use the web a lot so you have to work out how you fit into people's lives for their different mix and match media. So there was a big reorganization and rethink needed. It was a very interesting thing to live through. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, you spoke about how people want everything on the go. And uh, Andrew, one of the most wonderful writers on The Economist, uh, was here and she spoke on her craft of obituary writing. But she said that unfortunately today, there is so much reality TV and blogging and instant reactions that it has taken a toll on good writing. So do you see some truth in it? I think it's probably true to say that the pressures to get things out fast, to get things out in multiple formats, can, if you're not careful, eat into the time that's available to really craft the text, to spend the thinking time for good analysis and good writing. Um, I hope that we maintain that at The Economist, but it is true. There are lots of competing demands on, on journalists time and certainly in daily newspapers I think that's especially strong. Mm -hmm. One last question before I've got something special lined up for you for this episode is that uh, most of the authors Andrew, uh, Adam Roberts, Tom Standage, Jonathan Ledgard, all of them have a book to their names. Is this a culture on The Economist where you encourage people to write their books? Uh, Yes well I should say straight away I don't have personal (laughs) to my name so shame on me but I think yes people are very much encouraged if they have a book to take the time to write it and we will, you know, to the extent that uh, is reasonable, we'll give people space to do that and I think it's extremely helpful and benefits everybody actually if people get the space to really pursue something in depth. Um, There are some people who are amazingly efficient at doing this and produce lots of them and I, I can only admire them. Do you plan to? One day I would love to. I've never been sensible enough to arrange to get a sabbatical for myself, but one day I do hope to, yes. Workaholic. <laughs> well, I, it's just never quite worked out that I've had the time to do it, but I'm sure it will happen one day. Wish you good luck for that. Thank you. Well, I've got something on my mind which I haven't tried before. I plan to ask you a series of, uh, say, 10 questions, which yes. will have very short answers, either in one word or max a phrase. I request you to be as spontaneous as you could be. Yes, very good. How would you describe in one word the economist's editorial view of the world? Global. Who has half-jokingly but famously said, I used to think, now I just read The Economist? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a trivia. <laughs> I, I, yes, I have seen that, but I can't instantly remember. Uh, it, it's Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle. Yes, yes, yes. In one word, what is your message to a few who opine that The Economist is pitched at an American readership only because of its high circulation there? Um, read it more carefully. Okay. Everyone has their favorites. What is your favorite section on The Economist? I think my favorite each week, if I had one article I would read, would be the obituary. Ah. As the executive editor, name one journalistic liberty that a correspondent takes in his article that you would pardon. Journalistic liberty. Um, Inventing a word. That's nice. (laughs) I think your team invented sarconomics for Sarkozy. (laughs) Yes. And one such liberty that you would never pardon? I would say we should avoid tired metaphors. Mm. 
biggest compliment ever received as a writer or as, a, or as an editor to you? Gosh, the compliment that comes from saying that they've read something of mine and uh, under, understood the subject in a way they never had before. If The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? <laughs> I'd have to think of the world of cartoons now. Um, maybe Asterix. I like Asterix because it's plucky and bold. Oh, okay. In fact, Homer from Simpsons, while traveling by air in first class, says, Look at me, I'm reading The Economist. Yeah, they've written an article about Indonesia. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it, it, it isn't a coincidence that uh, when he mentions Indonesia in his dialogue and then six months down the line you come up with an article on Indonesia, in exactly the same dialogue. <laughs> One last question at the position that you're in. What is the feeling that you get up to work every morning? Uh, I think it doesn't feel like work is the, the honest answer, that it's just stimulating and a privilege. Great. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for your time. It was an honor, for lack of a better word, to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.